0: Welcome to the Outdoor Feast by Modern Carnivore. If you're new to hunting, fishing, or foraging, we welcome you to the conversation. Get ready for stories and insights that start in the Northeast, but range to the South, Far West, and wide open spaces in between. Now, here's your host, Todd Waldron.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Outdoor Feast. This is Todd. I hope everybody's well. It's uh, good to be back on the air and This week, we've got a great conversation coming down the line with Aaron Kindle from the National Wildlife Federation. Aaron is the uh, Director of Sporting Advocacy for NWF. Uh, We're talking about the rich legacy uh, behind NWF, all the great work they're doing nationally and through their affiliates. And it's just a really fun conversation. Aaron's a hunter, lives in Colorado talking a little bit about what he enjoys outdoors and like how he became a hunter, his early experiences. It's an amazing conversation. Um, Had a really great time. Hope you like it. Before we get
0: into the convo, though, uh, I'm with Mark Norquist, my good friend, Mark. How are you today? Doing well, Todd. It's good to finally connect. It's been too long.
1: It has been way too long. So it is now mid-February.
0: What's happening out in Minnesota these days? Still cold. <laughs> no, it's, it's, been, it's been a busy winter. We've been doing a lot of spear fishing, uh, dog sledding and, and, uh, a lot of winter centric activities. So it's, it's been good, even though it has, it literally has been colder than typical winters as of late, which, uh, has been nice cause we've kept the snow. So just a lot of outdoor activity going on. We just, um, I, I, did a little seminar week before last at the Minnesota Backcountry Hunters and Anglers State Rendezvous, which was the first time ever doing a winter rendezvous uh, in central Minnesota on Mille Lacs Lake, the famous Mille Lacs. And so it was fun to get everybody out there, had a good crew, and and just did some introduction to Dark House Spearing.
1: It looked amazing. I was following the social feed. Um, it looked like a lot of fun. It looked like everybody had a great time. And uh what a great way to come together um, you know, in terms of just being up at Malak and, and doing some spearing, getting people outdoors. Um, I've been doing a little bit of fishing too uh this year. The the winter's been similar here. It's been really cold. Uh my time uh to get outside has been limited with school, but I've been uh, jigging this this winter. So I traditionally go fishing with tip ups and get the whole set up and everything. But jigging is something that can be um like more rapid speed like go out for an hour or two at the end of the day cut 15 holes and just jig up and uh i've really enjoyed that i've probably jigged two or three times this winter and um having fun learning some about lake trout so it's it's good to get outside whether it's for an hour or whether it's for a day you know just get out when you can
0: yeah, no, that's great. I, I have not gotten out to do enough uh enough angling through the ice. Uh like I say, we've been doing the spearing, but it uh it is fun to get out, like you said, and just punch punch a few holes. I presume you got a power auger for that or are you uh doing the old hand auger? Yeah, I've got a, a nice sharp six inch
1: hand auger that I use. It's light um, it's really good for ice that's probably eight to 12 inches thick. When you get into late season where there's 16, 18 inches of ice, it really starts getting to be a drag um, just for cutting holes. But you know early season when the ice isn't too thick, it, it works really well. It's portable and light. Um, my dad still has a power auger, and so like this time of year, uh, it's just strapping that onto the sled and dragging it out. It's a little heavier, but boy, it, it makes it a lot better. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's a we when we we did that event a couple of weeks ago up north, I mean we had uh 22 inches of ice at that point. And so it's probably even a little bit thicker now and that 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 gets to be a lot to punch through with with a hand auger. Yeah.
1: yeah, it does, definitely. So it and um I'll probably get out One or two more times, uh, Lake Champlain has good ice. I like to perch fish like jigging early March is usually a good time for that. So a lot of water, Lake Champlain's an amazing fishery. And so panfish is, it's a fun way to get out. Um, might take my daughter, you know, early March has some nice warm days where it's 35, 40, and uh, it's a really fun experience. And usually, you know, just putting some perch on the ice makes for a fun day. So hopefully um, get some time here over the next couple of weeks. I'll be trying to do some
0: of that. Yeah, me too. I'm hoping to get out this spring, you know, late, late, late winter. So, um, we'll keep
1: everybody posted on the fishing and, uh, we'll bring everybody back to this conversation with Aaron Kindle. Uh, it's a great combo. So Aaron and I had this conversation, uh, right around the turn of hunting season last fall. And so Aaron lives in Colorado um, he was just coming back from an elk hunting trip and like he shared some really great personal stories. Aaron grew up in, well, I think it was Wyoming. I uh, went to university of Montana. So he's been out West most of his life um, has some great stories that he shares about like how he was young and his passion for the outdoors and like coming into hunting and his land ethic. And then he just brings this great combo around all the good work that nwf is doing their history uh you know their history is cool that uh everybody like that loves conservation's probably heard of ding darling the cartoonist that was around like the early stages of like duck stamps and everything and um nwf has really good ties to ding darling like it it actually like he was one of the people that founded that in the 1930s and so aaron talks a little bit about that and like the how the states and national federations work together um they're doing some great work around climate information and education for hunters and anglers they came out with a hunters and anglers guide to climate change last fall uh really good resource um their podcasts are amazing nwf outdoors and uh, vanishing seasons and um, artemis podcast is part of the nwf affiliation so grateful to have aaron um, talking about all that and uh, glad i hope y'all like it and without further ado uh, yeah let's get into aaron kindle and national wildlife federation thanks for listening aaron kindle director of sporting advocacy for national wildlife federation and host of nwf outdoors podcast welcome to the podcast how are you today
2: i'm good thanks for having me todd i appreciate uh, the reciprocal invite and, and being able to come talk to you and and hear what your podcast is all about
1: I am stoked to have you here, Aaron. And so just for our listeners, we recently did a podcast on NWF Outdoors um, about three or four weeks ago. And if you haven't checked that out, go over to NWF Outdoors. We'll put links in the show notes to catch that conversation. It was so much fun. And there's still plenty more to talk about. Like, So it was a good combo. And I'm so happy that you're here and uh, just want to catch up quickly. So you're in Colorado, it's fall. Uh, what's happening out there for you right now <laughs> in the outdoors?
2: Uh, well, as you might expect, we're getting some some light freezes and expecting a, a heavy, you know, season ending freeze anytime now here. Uh, the, the aspens are fully ablaze, uh, lots of yellow and gold and red and everything up across the mountainsides. And Got the elk bugling, and you know a lot of hunters gearing up. We're we're actually in between hunting seasons right now. Our archery season just ended on the thirtieth of September, and our first rifle season starts on the sixteenth of October. So, giving the animals a little break um, and getting us all geared up and prepared for for rifle season. So we're we're happy. It's these crisp, you know, seventy degree days and thirty degree nights, and it's about the best time of the year, if you ask me.
1: Oh, it sounds so perfect. Uh what an exciting time of year to be in Colorado. Um that's exciting. And so, how's the uh how's the weather been? Are you getting any precip at all? Has it been dry or what's happening there?
2: Yeah, it's been an interesting year. It was uh at least where I live, we had a pretty good monsoon season, which you know, for folks up in New York where you're at, monsoon maybe isn't something you talk about, but we get those, those, that subtropical moisture up from the Gulf of Mexico when our storms come across the Southwest and it pulls it into to our neck of the woods. And we did really good, got a pretty wet summer that can, you know, the, the feed for the animals and, and that kind of thing is, is in really good shape. But then we hit September or so, or maybe a little before and, and, just closed down. We went six, eight weeks without any precip. And now we're starting to get some, there, there's been snow on the peaks a handful of times so far. And, uh, it's been a little bit more moist and cool, so we're happy about that. Yeah,
1: I bet. I bet. And it sounds like still like the hunting conditions are still looking pretty good too to be able to cover ground and get, get around in the mountains. And so yeah. have you had a chance, I think we were talking about you doing some muzzleloader hunting with one of your children. Had, have you been out doing that yet or or is that still in the works?
2: Yeah, we have. And it's it's an interesting situation how we do it here in Colorado archery season's the whole month September and one week in between there they throw a muzzleloader in there and so we only got out for a couple of the days during muzzleloader uh found a few different animals um had a lot of we've we've had a lot of uh interaction with bulls this year and uh my son had a cow tag for his muzzleloader so naturally you, you you interact with the other the other sex that you're not looking for uh but uh then he's had an archery tag too I didn't have an archery tag and of course, he's had a, a lot of great experience with with bulls again, um, and he didn't harvest a deer either. Uh, he did harvest a grouse with his bow, which was interesting. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, we've been ho- toting a slingshot as well. So if we find some grouse, we can we can harvest them with a slingshot. And we we ate the grouse the other night. My folks visited from Wyoming, and he was proudly to, you know sharing his his harvest with our family, and that was really awesome. So we're uh, we're gearing up we've got a lot of hunting ahead of us as a youth in Colorado if if you have a tag uh that any antlerless tag after that you're eligible for so he's eligible for that muzzleloader season and then all the four rifle seasons we have here for a cow elk so we still got um middle of October through most of November for him so
1: Oh, so there's still plenty of time and it sounds like it's been fun so far. Yeah. And, uh, those encounters with the bulls are, are really intense and exciting. Um, and, and the grouse, is that like a, like a blue grouse or a dusky yep. grouse? or dusky. Yeah.
2: Yep. Okay, cool. We run into them kind of a lot and it's always occurred to us, you know, we don't, we don't want to shoot firearms when we're out hunting, obviously, in case, in case there's something anywhere nearby, but. We started uh, carrying a slingshot this year, which is, is kind of a nice alternative. Yeah, absolutely. That's fun. And so how did you cook that up? Uh, we did just a little bit of butter and garlic and salt and pepper. And then I, I touched a little bit of bourbon in there at the end just to give it that sweet, you know, nice taste at the end. It was really great. Oh, that's a, that's a pretty cool
1: treat. Um, I love that, Aaron. And that's a fun thing to share with your family and with your folks. So mm-hmm. what a cool way to, you know, to just top off that hunt and to be able to, you know, have something to share like that around the table um, really breaks things up and it's pretty awesome. So uh, keep us posted on the rest of the hunting season. I can't wait to hear more. Uh, You know, I have not hunted in Colorado since 2018. So it's been a couple of years and I definitely get the itch when I go more than two or three years without coming out. So you start talking about, yeah, you start talking about the elk and the mountains and the yellow aspen leaves and the grouse. And you're like, you're like, I'm getting itchy. And I'm like, okay, it's, you know, I might be able to squeeze a trip in this year.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're welcome to come see us. I would love to have you. And, uh, it's, it's, there is no better time. I mean, that's, that's where I love to focus. And my son's 16 and the last couple of years is when he's been really, you know, been capable of the full elk woods, meaning h- hiking up and down two or three thousand feet and, you know, all over. And now, now of course, he's ahead of me because uh, he's a strong, capable kid. And, uh, you know, I've really focused a lot of my hunting, you know, experience and, and ideas and what we want to do around him because, boy, that vicarious living through a through a kid who really loves it and just would take every minute of it is, there's nothing better. It's better than hunting for yourself. It really is. Absolutely.
1: It it definitely is. Um it that's really cool. It's a great family experience and to be out there with your son um in the mountains. You know, it's uh hunting has always been a family ritual for me, like with my dad and um and my daughter is um she's gonna be nine well, she just turned nine, so she hunts deer with me a little bit, but we fish a lot. But um just being in the outdoors, spending time with your kids is just an amazing experience. Um and you've got in Colorado a ton of public land, right? I mean, you got like twenty, yeah. twenty-five, thirty million acres of public land or something like that. What yeah, you know about what tw-
2: 24 million acres in uh, in my county we're ninety percent public land. Ninety percent so,
1: public land. Yeah, right yeah. in
2: the upper eighties, right right there, 88, eighty eight, eight ninety, something like that. So yeah we got a lot of stuff right nearby that that we can go hunt in so pretty lucky pretty lucky indeed and i think you know that's a pretty cool
1: segue to talk about conservation and like what you do as director of sporting advocacy for nwf and um like some of the work you do around public lands i know our audience is excited to hear about that and about like how that comes together and just learning more about what you do um, so before we get into your role with, with NWF, how did you get into a conservation career? I think I read someplace that you're a lifelong Westerner, right? And
0: mm-hmm.
1: yep. yep. So grew, maybe grew up in Wyoming, you're in Colorado. Um, yep. well, how did you like, how did you get your feet into conservation, Aaron?
2: Well, yeah, you're right. I grew up, uh, partly in Wyoming and partly in Colorado until I was about in high school. I lived in Wyoming, and, you know, I think for most people that you'll ever meet from Wyoming, you know, you'll, you'll automatically hear that they spent a lot of time out in the woods and it's just part of the lifestyle, you know, a, there's not too much city stuff to do anyway. So you, you go out into the, uh, the woods and the prairies and you you do outdoor stuff. So, you know, that, that was obviously the seed and, um, I, I had a, you know, a couple different things in my family life that helped me do that too. My grandfather and, and grandmother on my dad's side were educators, and my grandfather was a you know a naturalist, and he he lived part of his time in, in California and was a was a naturalist for Yosemite National Park, and then he would spend his summers in near near a place called Dubois, Wyoming, which is not too far from Teton National Park and Yellowstone National Park, and and he you know w- he was really the naturalist part where all the things like geology and biology and, you know, trees and all of those things where you were really kind of trying to intimately understand what the heck's going on outside. My grandfather on my dad's side planted a lot of those seeds. Um, you know, my parents themselves took me outside, but we didn't get into that kind of deeper study. It was more just fishing and doing different things. And, you know, but, uh, then my on, my on the other side of my my family was uh my mom's parents and they went outside a lot a lot of hunting and fishing and that kind of thing too and i did that growing up and you know the interesting part of my story i think at least and i'll and i'll take this because this is how people relay it back is that i had a moment when i was young um you know maybe maybe 11, 12 years old. And I started seeing some things I didn't really appreciate about hunting specifically. I saw people doing the wrong thing. And, you know, I didn't know law-wise or whatnot, whether it was wrong or right, you know, legally, but it just felt wrong as a kid. Um, You know, shooting things that you're not going to eat, shooting things that are definitely not a sporting species, just shooting it. Um, those kinds of things and I actually went away for a handful of years from hunting and said you know if this is what hunting is then I'm I, I don't think I want to be part of that and this was this was my peripheral family my dad was always a a conscientious hunter and he always had a bird dog and you know he was into duck hunting a handful of times a year and pheasant hunting not too much into big game but in any case you know at that time I said, you know, maybe I'm not a hunter and it took me a handful of years to get back to it until I met some of the, some of the right people that could, you know, bring me back in and say, you know, that's not really what hunting is. And so I got back into it and then, you know, head over heels. Uh, once I, once I really realized what it could be and what it is and how intimate you can be with the landscape and, and just the way you get to learn about wildlife and understand them on a deeper level than, you know, frankly, any other outdoor pursuit if you ask me so it took all of that and you know as far as getting into professional conservation uh you know spending all that time in the woods just basically asked myself the question how the heck can I keep doing this uh for a living and interestingly you know we spend so much time in front of a computer now uh even as professional conservationists uh so maybe not exactly what I had in mind at the beginning I think but uh you know, went to school uh, in, in undergrad in Gunnison, Colorado, and then went to graduate school at University of Montana and uh, actually chose Montana because I – my my prerequisites for graduate school had nothing to do with what I could do at school. They had to do with where they were. And uh, if you if you look at University of Montana, uh, you'll see that you basically can't find a, a better place with more wild country and wild critters uh, to go to school than University of Montana. So uh chose that and started a little house painting business to get myself through graduate school and uh, got a master's of science in environmental studies. And lots of folks that are out in the world in the professional conservation world now uh, are, are part of that cohort. And you'll, you'll, you know, some of them I know, I, I'm not going to name names, but there's quite a few of us running around. And uh, through that, you know, I, I started working for Trout Unlimited for a while, uh, you know, doing fisheries conservation and, and sporting conservation for what used to be called the Sportsman's Conservation Project, you know, and, and it, it, to me, was just a natural fit immediately. Um, There's a lot of the people I want to hang out with and the kind of issues I want to work on. And so, you know, that was a good handful of years ago and ever since I've been doing sporting conservation and, 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 loving it.
1: I love all of that. So that's a great background. I love the fact that you developed that mindfulness and the ethic at such an early age, um, that's quite impressive, by the way, because I think that speaks to, like, your family members. You know, you're talking about multi generational influences and being outdoors and having that deep appreciation for nature and forests and for wildlife. Because, um, you know, so many times it it takes a while, um, you know, to to get that mindfulness around the ethics. Um, so it's, it's awesome that you really kind of were thinking that way so early in life, Aaron, and that it's really fascinating. Like, thank you for sharing your part of the story about like how it kind of turned you off for a while around what you were seeing, but then like how important it is to have people, um, that can be positive role models that can kind of bring you, you know, like resonate with us as, as hunters and anglers and like. Knowing that we have other friends out there that that are uh, respecting their, um, wildlife and places and doing things, and in, in a way that we want to honor hunting and, and angling and how we engage with the outdoors, so it's just a good reminder to, like, um, you know, to be available for people and to be a good role model. I just I love it, um, and yeah, University of Montana, uh, Missoula is an awesome town. It's uh, I can imagine that there is just so much to do out there. So it's, it's great. Um, Thank you for sharing all of that. And so you're with, you had this amazing uh, trajectory. You were working with Trout Unlimited and now you're with National Wildlife Federation. And so I'm in the East and a lot of the listeners are from the Midwest and the East. And I would love to hear you talk a little bit about NWF and, and what you love about working for them. And, you know, also about your role, but just talk, tell us a little bit about NWF and um, some of the great sure.
2: history that they've got. Sure. Uh, so NWF's been around since 1936, and it kind of has a pretty famous uh, beginning. And many folks might know it. There's some real giants in sporting conservation that were part of NWF's beginning. Teddy Roosevelt, uh, Aldo Leopold. Ding Darling, the creator of the duck stamp, Ding Darling was our actual first, uh, was our founder, the person you could, the single person you could say is our founder. Uh, But if folks know some conservation history, back in 1936, those folks called what was called the National uh, Wildlife Conference. And out of that conference, they were really trying to address, you know, this is back when we had seen a loss of a lot of game animals, a lot of, you know, waterfowl a lot of environmental issues and everybody kind of got this recognition that, Hey, boy, if we don't start treating these things differently, the future is bleak for, for sporting pursuits and wildlife advocates and waterfowl and, you know, songbirds and all these things. And so it took those luminaries, uh, getting folks together saying, Hey, let's, let's come together and figure out what we want to do. There's actually a famous cartoon that many folks have probably seen and it's it's the it's a caricature of, you know, decision makers kind of climbing up the top of the Capitol Dome while this whole horde of hunters and anglers and wildlife enthusiasts are descending upon the Capitol. And they're like, oh my gosh, look at this rush of people. Uh, but that that cartoon is about the start of National Wildlife Federation. It's about the moment that everybody said, we've had enough of watching all these valuable resources degrade. And we're going to start doing something about it. So that was the start. And from there, many of our state affiliates uh, were born too. So if you hear about uh, National Wildlife Federation, what what it really means is a true federation. Um, We have 53 state and territorial affiliates, and they cover the whole gamut of conservation, wildlife, environmental issues. And about 30 of them are what we call the hook and bullet affiliates, right? The ones who... They're serving a a predominantly sporting audience. They speak to that with that voice. And that's kind of the same kind of conservation, you know, you and I do and talk about a lot, sporting conservation. But those folks, we have an annual meeting. And every time that we do that, leading up to that moment, they say, here's the biggest issues of the day. They get together in committees. They write resolutions. They bring them forth for discussion in those meetings. And then they vote on them. And then it's our job as the national staff to carry out the will of the federation. And so it's it's looks kind of like Congress. They have two delegates for each one. So it's very similar to the Senate. And we have those meetings. They sit up there in the front and it's for each state. And it really looks similar to, to the Senate. And the neat thing about that, I think the, the most impressive and thing that I love the most is, A, you get you get a real picture of the country you you know you they have different issues in Delaware than you do in New Mexico and Florida compared to you know you know the Pacific Northwest so you get the full spectrum for one and for two it, we we do this collective decision making and you know that really stands the test of time because we work together utilizing many different really smart wise folks uh to make these decisions and just dis- to to decide how we're going to move forth so that's how the federation operates. And, you know, and for my part of it, uh, I lead our our sporting work and, and, you know, you've, you've mentioned my role as director of sporting advocacy, and that's really about uh, taking our priorities, translating them and working with other sporting organizations. You know, we work a lot with all the sporting organizations you know of and hear of and you know, we were constantly in meetings and, and helping decision makers understand our priorities and writing legislation and all all the things you can imagine that it takes to to do good sporting work. Um, and then, you know, the other part that I'm in charge of as well is uh, our communications. And we have the podcast and, you know, our social media and the way we convey these things is is really important. And we touched on that a little, but I thought I'd take this time to come back to it because, I feel like we have this real duty, you know, with the way things are moving, not just, you know, in the world, as far as people being less in touch with the outdoors, because we know they are and there's more distraction, you know, than there's ever been with Facebook and Instagram and, you know, phones and everything. But uh, you know, our responsibility as as sportsmen and women, right. Um, Not everybody is, we, we know it's about 5% of our country um, are, are hunters and, you know, if, if, if anything you're doing, 95% of the people don't understand it, then that 5% that's left has, has kind of an obligation to, hey, we need to convey this. We need to make sure it's understood accurately. We need to respect that the other people may not see it the same way. And I think, you know, for, for NWF, one of the things that I'm lucky to have is many different data points because we have folks who don't hunt. We have folks that, you know, concentrate on on pollinators, all the time. We have folks that concentrate on water quality and offshore wind quality or uh not quality, but offshore wind. And so we have a lot of different touch points to where we can make really sound decisions and understand a lot of perspectives. Uh, but but I really go out of my way to try and help those folks understand the sporting perspective and to communicate it in a way that is uh, you know, respectful of all the different folks. And really shows the best and the brightest of what sportsmen and women are, and how dedicated we are to the resource and you know the lengths we 're willing to go to make sure that our fish and wildlife and, and habitat are taken care of for for us and for many others
1: that's all amazing. Uh, you said so much there, and there's still so much to talk about and so many questions that I ask that are um, around that, but like I love kind of like the democratic approach to how your federation works, uh, you know, when you think about our public lands being for all Americans and democracy and everything, like it's really fitting and cool. You know, hunting and angling, um, outdoor spaces, um, having that democratic representation from the states, and seeing those state issues and bringing delegates to the fold and making those good decisions—that's amazing. I just, I just love that. And I didn't know that, and I bet you a lot of folks listening to this didn't really know it either. So I think it's helpful. Yeah,
2: I should have mentioned too, Todd, that the other thing that that does is you know the grassroots part of it, right? When you have local folks working deeply within their state legislatures and their wildlife commissions and all those entities, you can get information and knowledge that, you know, it's really hard to get if you're just some entity hanging out in headquarters, wherever it may be. Um, So that's, that's something that I'm definitely, you know, just have a lot of gratitude for with our affiliates. I can call up someone in Tennessee tomorrow or Florida or, you know, Washington, and just get really up to date, up to the minute, sound conservation advice. And so that's something that I'm just thankful for every day and really appreciative of our affiliates that we have that, that resource. It's just really unheard of.
1: Yeah, it is. And I bet you are appreciative of it. And it's like a bridge, you know, like when you think about, like you're talking about hunting and angling and only like, okay, on the hunting and angling side, and then there's the broader outdoor community and broader conservation. But let's talk about hunting and angling. So you've got, you know, uh, 5% of the Americans who hunt now, you know, that that number has been kind of slowly declining, although it's stabilized through COVID. But you, you, you know, that grassroots involvement and engagement and everything is, is a bridge to keeping that community relevant and part of the bigger conversation. Right. So like, I love the, the fact that like when you start talking about grassroots efforts and engagement and communication, all that stuff is the bridge, right. To, to get to, to to keep things relevant and to keep our voices at the table.
2: Yeah, it is. And, you know, I, it's interesting with conservation. A lot of us, we, we kind of go off into our little factions or our groups, you know, we got guys working on clean energy, guys working on, you know, sporting issues or fishing or whatever. And it's interesting how that plays out and, and that it seems like at some certain increment people go, Oh wait, we actually have so much in common. And we spend a lot of time kind of squabbling over that 2% or 5% or whatever, maybe we don't see it exactly the same way, but this last, I don't know, handful of years, the outdoor recreation community and the sporting community and, and some of the others have started to come together. You saw that with, uh, you know, the way the outdoor retailer actions happened around public lands, because Utah was so terrible on some of the public land stuff. They said, Hey, we're out of here. And, uh, you know, kind of throwing our collective weight around a little bit more. And I think that that's really pays dividends, right? I mean, as a force, the outdoor community, all of it is huge economically, politically, uh, just our our acumen and our knowledge about so many different things that are happening out there. You know, a lot of our decision makers don't spend a ton of time out in the woods and, and waters. And so they need people like us to come and tell them what's really going on out there and what happened now compared to five or 10 years ago. And you know what the animals are doing and those kinds of things. So I'm glad to see that, you know, unity, unity with, with those folks and see how it's coming together and sharing knowledge.
1: You bet. I mean, that's, that's well said, Aaron. And I think I love hearing you talk about commonalities around these issues because I think one thing as we, get to the table and everybody comes in and we bring more voices and we have representation around interests and looking at like what those commonalities are, you know, the more we find out that, you know, we're all in, you know, that there are these basic foundational kinds of things that, um, that benefit all of us around the outdoors and about our public lands. Um, what do you, what do you find as like the biggest, like commonality themes, like working with folks that are involved in those touch points with, um, you know, with pollinators and with offshore wind and with hunting, where do you see them all coalescing um, with, with those commonalities?
2: Yeah, well, man, you could take that in a few different directions, right? If you, if you're talking policy, if you're talking just from a human perspective, you know, all of those folks. You know, just have a deep commitment to to seeing the the flora and fauna and the, the things that belong out on the landscape. You know, healthy and vibrant and and there for us and in the future. And I think all of them feel pretty. You know, it's it's a worry, but it's also just a protective kind of a feeling. Like this is this is our wildlife. This is our you know, and it sounds kind of you know, like I'm saying, we own it and we, you know, we kind of do functionally is how how the laws work, but it's more meaning it's ours. It's a, it's a natural cultural, you know, country nationwide resource. This is, this is something that we're blessed with and, and we need to take care of it. And, you know, that commonality, it's really fun. You get in a room with a old lady birders or, you know, kids who are Cub Scouts or a group of old codger hunters. They all, kind of have that love of the resource. And that's that's the most important thing. And that's the thing that, you know, our job at NWF particularly, you know, everybody's heard of Ranger Rick, right? Uh Ranger Rick is often a lot of kids' first kind of idea. You know, if you if kids are in a city and maybe don't have access, they get that magazine, and they're like, oh, there's turtles in there or butterflies or a deer or whatnot. And they start developing a little bit of these are cool. I want to see them. Where are they? And they live out there and we should take care of where they live. And, you know, it's a cascading effect. And it's almost that simple. It's that root. It's, you know, there's some sort of something within us that we know those things have value, both for, you know, just being and also because they're also the way we live. They're our food and our water and our air. And so that's that's the thing I love is almost anybody you strike up a conversation with, uh, you can just see their you know, commitment to taking care of those things. And and that's a, that's, I think it's a little bit uniquely American. I mean, I think humans do it too, but I think there's a conservation ethos in our country that, that people have. And I think by the time you find people who don't have it, it's because someone's taken them away from it, not because they didn't intrinsically have it.
1: I love all of what you just said. And I think, you know, whether you're, you know, concerned about pollination or, or clean energy, open space, water, all of it, you know, it's not an either or even, but like that love of the resource and that respect and that concern and coming to the table, because you want to see that protected and you want to see it carried on and that we have this model. We have these opportunities with all this public land, with all these wildlife populations, Um, I just, you know, I think it's great for people to hear what you just said in terms of, you know, when sometimes it's easy to get into kind of our head about like, I'm coming at this from my hunting and angling side, but always remembering that that person with you at the table, when it comes down to it with like the core values and with like the interests that there's so, so much overlap there that we, we really do want to see, the same things on a foundational level, even if like our, you know, sometimes our positions come across uh, that are reflective of our particular um, interests. But like when it all comes down to it, none of that, you know, can really be sustainable unless those commonalities are underneath and that we maintain the big picture. Um, So it's amazing
2: work that you're doing. I appreciate that. And I guess, uh, let me, let me add one thing, if you don't mind. Anecdotally, you know, we talked about my son getting a grouse the other day. Well, you know, we're cleaning that grouse and what's in its throat. It's got uh, what, what we believe were rosehip seeds. You know, it had been eating rosehips. It had eaten a dandelion. You know, we saw some of these things and and it's like, well, wait, if I like grouse, I guess I like roses and I guess I like dandelions. And I get, you know, it's just a small, simple way of saying the thing that I, I love so much about hunting is that it brings you closer that way it shows you this full spectrum because the grouse can't live without those other things and then you start caring about those other things because you care about grouse and then when the you know and then it just starts kind of cascading on itself and you go well in order for the roses, the wild roses to be out there you need pollinators and if you've got pollinator you know it just kind of takes care of itself uh, and I think hunting is a direct and great vehicle for that. And it's one of the things I really appreciate about the the kind of lessons that hunting teaches you.
1: I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I, I love your, you know, your way of describing that, Aaron, because there's an ecology to it, right? There's an interconnectedness. Um, there There are systems that are in place that are all intertwined. And so, you know, it helps us kind of think broadly about what does it take, you know, it's like we're out there connecting to ourselves and to the land and providing food. Um it offers a reflective opportunity to think about what it takes to actually make that happen and keep that there. And uh I love that story about the grouse. That's so cool.
2: And it was a roundabout way of of kind of answering your question that you asked, you know, the connection between everybody because you know those folks who care about pollinators would would see that, and those folks who who care about the forbs and the grasses and so on would see, oh, the elk need that, and you know you make this kind of connection it helps with those conversations that you asked about in the first place um when you know when you know those those upland birds are often eating those pollinators right, and those seeds that the of the plant that the pollinators need to pollinate. And so then you start talking about someone who who really likes pollinators and you go, "Oh, let me tell you this story." And then you're connected. And there's millions of those kinds of stories as as a hunter and angler and just as someone who who cares about the outdoors.
1: There sure is. And not only is that a great specific story, but what you're saying is this: that's a great way to relay that story too, and you know, through through those connections and being able to have tangible talks about how things are connected um, through those particular stories, through the ecology that we learn about, you know, from our from our hunting experiences and what it takes, and you know, the food, the cover. Um, I I love all of that. Um, what do you? So, you, you know, you're the director of sporting advocacy. And so for like average hunters and anglers, how do you talk about advocacy when you're meeting with some grassroots members, maybe or supporters of, of some of your NWF federations and like, how can hunters and anglers approach some of this stuff in terms of what can they do and how, how can they kind of grasp it and understand it?
2: yeah that's a that's a good question one I get asked a lot and i i say some version of kind of the same answer a lot too, and that is you know what I say a lot about hunters and anglers is, boy, it's hard to come by the kind of knowledge that we glean after years and years in the woods, particularly you know when someone spent twenty years hunting the same place, um seasonal changes, migration patterns all different kinds of things and who the heck else gets up at four in the morning, goes tromping out in the dark, trying to be as quiet as possible. I mean, you just, I don't do that really unless I'm hunting or trying to specifically observe an animal, you know? So you get these experiences and you see things that you just wouldn't otherwise see. And so what I try to convey to to hunters and anglers is tell that story. That's important. If a decision maker isn't a hunter or an angler, they don't know about that. And they may not even know that these things are happening out there in the woods and how amazing it is and how you've learned so many other things, you know, go out in the woods and watch the ravens and they'll tell you probably where a deer was harvested or they've got some other kind of thing going over here and you follow them and you find out there's another dead critter or they're having a little squabble about something, you know, those, those pursuits, Point you to knowledge and give you knowledge, and the folks that that are making these decisions don't always have that knowledge, and we can give that to them, and we can and they like hearing these stories, right? They hear a lot of dry policy, you know, just numbers and finance and things like that. They want someone to come in and tell them a cool story of a of a hunt or a hike or whatnot. So. That's really what I try to do is put, take these things. We boil it down into simple, you know, talking points or, or elements where it's this legislation is going to do these four things that are good for hunters and anglers. Now think about when you've seen something out there that needed that help or that this would address and tell the story of what's happening to you through the lens of how it would help if these things happened. And if you do that, um, that voice is, is just really powerful. And I've never been to a, a meeting with a Congressperson or a wildlife commissioner or a, you know, a state legislator where they didn't kind of stop and listen in a different way. And I've seen the, you know, I've seen the policy discussions about the dry stuff too. And they, you know, you watch a, watch a, watch a state legislative hearing or something. Everybody looks like they're about to fall asleep, Right. That's not my experience with uh, when you bring in hunters and anglers and, and have them tell those stories. So I think there's just something really cool about it and and people understand that naturally. And so I really just try to give them the tools to tell their personal story through a lens that will achieve conservation outcomes.
1: That is awesome. I love how you described that um, about the the element of the storytelling around that and what people are seeing and the accumulated knowledge that, that hunters and anglers gain over a lifetime and over so many days enjoyed out in the woods. Um, and that's been my experience too, with, uh, the, the storytelling around that in like catching somebody's attention because it's different and it's direct knowledge. Um, and it's a different kind of knowledge. I think like, it's just something that people, um, you know have kind of if they're not in the outdoors uh, they just haven't been exposed to that um, but but deep down like when you were talking earlier about ranger rick i think that there's still that curiosity for most of us and so like we we want to connect to the outdoors and when we hear stories like that i think it it does help us stop and listen um, and and reflect on it um, so that's amazing i love that
2: well and let us not forget todd that Since time immemorial, since humans have been humans, uh, we've been telling stories around a campfire. We've been, and what have most of those stories been about? Our our journey over the mountain, our harvesting of this animal, our connection with other people who are doing the same thing, you know, our travels through the woods and waters. Um, So there's something kind of ancient, I think, that calls all of us and brings us all in when you're hearing a story about being out there and interacting and intermingling with, with the wild lands and wild critters. And so I I try not to, you know, ever not give that enough value because it has a ton of value and it's, it gets lost a little bit now, but there's something about everyone who can understand that. And that's the reason you see them kind of perk up a little when you start telling that outdoor story. So never forget that. And I, I wish out of all things I could teach every hunter and angler to To tell their story really well and to be able to develop the elements and say it in a way that really, you know, conveys the meaning of it. Because if we could do that, I think we went on about every one of these issues.
1: I think you're right. And uh, I think, you know, you, you are so correct there about, you know, having it embedded in our DNA and in our experience and whether it's an archetype or whatever to human existence. I like to joke with my wife, like, I don't have any tattoos, but like if I ever got a tattoo, it would be like the cave art from you know Lascaux, France, from the Pleistocene, <laughs> where there's you know there's what did they that was storytelling, right? You know you look on the caves, those pictures, and yeah. there's reindeer and there's bears and there's bison, and they were telling those stories through that ancient art, and uh, you know it goes way back into our existence. It's um, that's for sure. I love how you said that, Aaron, and yeah so what how do you bridge the gap then in terms of like you've got Aaron Kendall who is the hunter and angler and conservationist professionally and all of that and so like you've got you know you're working with hunters and anglers to tell their stories um, in meaningful and authentic and compelling ways and so like for you and kind of like your role here um, how are you bridging the the gap between there and like what you see is like the most pressing issues um, for policy, for instance, in hunting and angling and conservation right now. I guess maybe the question is, is like, what do you see as the pressing issues? And then like, how are you kind of uh, interpreting it back?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, I think what's great about being a hunter and an angler, right. Is, is we've created all these resources for the species that we love. And so, you know, a lot of the hunted and fish species are doing pretty good um, for the most part. You know, there's there's some exceptions, things like salmon, of course, are, are struggling and, and there's some others. But, you know, I think that uh, is an interesting paradigm to follow for some other things, right? When you can invest in it, you see the return. And we have naturally, Pittman Robertson and in all of our conservation efforts, you know, have seen the returns, right? Waterfowl is struggling. Waterfowl is actually one of the things doing pretty good generally. Um, And now we're seeing a lot of other species and we, I think the challenge of our day is to take our kind of acumen and put it out there for other conservation gains, Right. Like we've got a ton of elk. We don't need to save elk anymore. But what about uh, fly catchers that are relying on, you know, migratory paths and stuff that have development and other problems? Where's their resources? Because no one's trying to hunt them, you know? And so we do things like Recovering America's Wildlife Act, um, which you've probably heard of. And that is all about um, resourcing state agencies to work on the species that are in trouble, um, they're not on the endangered species list yet or anything, but you know none of us want to get there. We want to get those species turned around before they ever get there. And the great thing about that particular piece of legislation is it—that's what it's for. It's specifically designed to go look at the species who are on what are called the state wildlife action plans, and every state has one. And this is where they've identified, you know, everything from amphibians and waterfowl and songbirds and you know rodents, everything that's struggling, and they've said these are the species that really need help or they're going to go on the endangered species list eventually and so so the plan's there, everything's there they just need the resources and so we've been pushing this bill through Congress for a handful of years. the new iteration of it, which I think is really cool, uh, used to it used to get the revenue for for resourcing these agencies off of uh, offshore oil and gas royalties. It changed recently and now what they're doing is they're taking the money from environmental fines. So if you have things like oil spills or air quality violations or you know even wildlife violations, and they're starting to put that into this pot so that if this thing could ever pass, we have these resources and it takes it from something that was hurting the environment and puts it back into something that helps the environment. So I think that's a really cool new thing. That's an example of something we work on and that's all hands on deck, right? You can see uh that a lot of different water quality folks would like that. Uh pollinator folks would like that, you know, bird advocates would like that. We like it. We know it's something I say all the time. Habitat equals opportunity. And what are you going to do if you help all these animals? You're going to improve their habitat. Well, if you improve their habitat, we know through ecology, we kind of touched on it. You're going to improve the habitat for a lot of other critters too. And then that's going to be a, a holistic benefit that really you know, honors ecology and, and, and recognizes that all these things, you know, they touch on each other. And if you take care of one, you're probably helping the other. So that's something we work on. Uh, we've been working on what, what used to be called 30 by 30. Now it's called America, the beautiful, you know, that's the concept that if you protect and conserve 30% of lands and waters by the year 2030, that you will, uh, that will be what we need to stave off, you know, an even bigger crisis. And it, frankly, we do have a wildlife crisis, right? We're losing a lot of species. We saw just the other day that the, that the, uh, 23 species were pulled off the endangered species list, not because they were recovered, but because they were deemed extinct, Um, so things are happening like that, that we need to address 30 by 30 or America, the beautiful is cool. It provides a handful of different mechanisms to conserve and protect areas. That's, you know, keeping pristine areas intact. It's, it's helping private landowners get resources to do, you know, smarter things on their landscapes and take care of their lands, um, So those kinds of things we work on, we're working on climate change. Um, You know, you know that the sporting community has maybe been reluctant over, over the years to talk about climate change. I think, I think it's a, it's a damn shame in a way, because as I talked about earlier, I think we're the best ones for the job. Um, We, we just, you know, you go to a landscape for 20 years and you watch it change and you know, something's going on here. Uh, You, you either good or bad or indifferent, you know, something's happening. So we're the ones that that are the appropriate uh messengers I think for that and you know it's 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 becoming more uh accepted to talk about it which I'm glad to see and I think the other thing that that I'm really trying to work on is as we address that through things like infrastructure package or wildlife corridors or uh clean water other things like that we can make hunting and fishing better while we address it so even if you don 't want to call it climate change, call it whatever you want, come and get on board with the with the restoration and the good work it takes to to recover these landscapes and we'll make hunting and fishing better and it, to me it doesn 't really matter what it 's called, um, but we need resources to do these things, and we need our community to do these things so we work on those um, you know you 've probably heard about lots of the energy development issues in the west we work on that quite a bit both from you know, looking at the plans and how are they going to impact wildlife and working with the agencies, BLM and forest service and others to say, here's the appropriate way to do it. Here's some areas that you shouldn't do it in at all. You know, here's some concerns we have, uh, those kinds of things. Um, you know, it, it, we work with, uh, the American wildlife conservation partners, which is called AWCP. It's a group of about 50, mostly sporting organizations. Uh, and they're always sitting there working together about many of the same things I talked about, but it's a it's a real think tank of if you will, not a not a true think tank don't don't get folks confused there, but it it's a it's a silo of folks who who know a lot about these things and and we spend time with them and developing policies that are proactive for for the sporting community and many touches beyond the sporting community but uh you know, if there's a sporting conservation issue or or really a conservation issue at all. NWF's working on it, and you know when it's sporting related. Of course, I am, and then I get pulled into a couple other little things, and you know I pull other people into our stuff because we have experts in those arenas. So uh, I'm I'm lucky to be able to tap into a lot of different really smart people and and really cool resources, and both internally and externally. Um, so I'm just a privilege to do the work we do, and just happy and that we can that we can bring these things to the forefront in a way that's representative of the true conservation ethic of of sportsmen and women and all the awesome things that embody.
1: You just said so many cool things Aaron. I've been taking notes. Like I appreciate you going over uh Rawa and like some of the work that you're doing and how you're bringing people together, smart people. Uh, taking notes on some of the cool things you said. One thing you said that was awesome was when you invest in it, you see the return, you know, and like hunters and anglers have been investing in North American conservation model for well over a hundred years. And we have all these amazing programs, the funding mechanisms, license sales, um, the habitat work that really resonates with me. I love how you just say that succinctly. Um, The other thing you said was habitat equals opportunity. And so opportunity that transcends not only just things that are good for hunters and anglers but for everybody else all those commonalities whether you're a birder whether you like to hike mountain bike whatever you know that's the glue that's what provides that opportunity um, for so many different things including wildlife and then the other thing that i just absolutely love what you said was that hunters and anglers are best equipped while there's some reluctancy to talk about climate We're the ones that are best equipped. We're the ones that are out there seeing these changes. We see how it impacts grouse. We see how it impacts rose hips. We see how it impacts breeding and all of that stuff. And like this whole conversation you've been sharing about telling stories. And so like we are in a position to be able to tell those stories and furthermore, like what you're saying, and I'm just paraphrasing because I love what you said so much. Was that, you know, regardless of what you call it, um, that that these measures that can can help address all this stuff can make hunting and fishing better too, and and everything else in the outdoor space. So uh, you, it's amazing. I I love that whole conversation.
2: Well, I I appreciate that, Todd. And you know, I think. Let's get more specific a little bit about that because I think you're touched on something that I keep saying and then I heard your excitement about it and I said, oh, well, maybe maybe we should address this some more. But, you know, we keep hearing this big bipartisan infrastructure bill, right? We hear that and everybody's like, you know, what in the heck is that? Well, first, we know what infrastructure is, right? It's bridges, roads, pipelines, you know, telecommunications. We kind of know what that is. But there's also this thing called natural infrastructure, right? And that means that if you for instance maybe uh revegetate a stream that's been denuded from some process uh then what do you get you get slower water speeds when there's a flood because those those trees and bushes and so on slow down the water so then you get less impact on the town that's down below and what else does that do oh that's better habitat for the invertebrates next to the stream that's more cooling for the for the water for the you know to shade the water which cools the water and provides better habitat for fish. Oh, that's also, what do you know? We create a little wetland with that, and that's better for the waterfowl and better for you know baby fish. And so you get something that took care of a human need but also improved hunting and fishing. And that's the kind of thing we're talking about when we say natural infrastructure, when we say investing in, in infrastructure. We need to invest in roads and bridges and to, you know those kinds of things too. Our country is actually pretty far behind compared to most, you know, modernized countries and and developed countries with how often we develop, uh, sorry, not develop, how often we invest in, in infrastructure. So we need an investment. We haven't had a real investment in more than 40 years in our infrastructure across the board. And besides that, when you do the natural infrastructure, you actually prevent the need to fix and invest further down the road because- For instance, if you do what I just said on that stream and you can mitigate a flood that comes down from that, then the bridge that's down below isn't threatened from that flood or the community down below, the road that gets blown out isn't threatened. And so then you kind of have this symbiotic relationship with the natural infrastructure and the built infrastructure and everybody wins. And at the same time, the last and maybe most important thing uh, before I finish is that it makes hunting and fishing and wildlife habitat better. If we can do that, how the heck could we not want to invest in that?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I got to tell you a quick story. Last week I was over at a stakeholders meeting on the Green Mountain National Forest in Vermont. And so it was this is work related for RGS, but um they put together a stakeholder meeting for outdoor groups. Uh the Green Mountain National Forest is four hundred and fifty thousand acres or so, almost a half a million, runs up the Green Mountain spine of right through the middle of Vermont. And they took us on a habitat tour and we were looking at a stream where they've done some, they called it AOP, but it's like aquatic organism programs. And they were showing, like, this is perfect to what you're saying because they did some stream restoration. And then they they have, like, revised these, like, culverts and crossings because, like, it was flood related and climate related to, like, hundred year floods from Hurricane Irene several years ago. But the way that they designed it also improved passage for brook trout for wild brook trout to go upstream and downstream and so forth but the the other thing that was amazing was that they designed them so there could be wildlife corridors so like deer and fishers and mink and raccoons and everything could like could use those as corridors for traveling because they were like wide enough around the stream itself um to provide a corridor like for for crossings and i was i thought that was so cool and they're working with local towns yeah, it was amazing. Um so just like a tangible story that's like so related to what you were just saying, uh natural infrastructure and the importance of you know the the other infrastructure around that. And uh so two two more questions. We're almost at an hour already. We could go on for days. Uh just how can folks support NWF? If I'm a hunter or an angler or a hiker or a pollinator fan, like, do we, do we get engaged on a, on a federal, like a state level, uh federation level? Um, so just a little bit about how, how we can support NWF. And then also just a little bit about your podcast and, and where sure. things are at and what you're looking forward to and how people can find it.
2: And cut me off if I get to going on something and you need to steer me back, but <laughs> there's a couple of different things, obviously becoming a member of NWF, uh, In that case, you're going to get a broad spectrum, all the different issues, federal, sometimes state, uh, you know, and then whatever your state is, there's a wildlife federation, right? Um, There just is wherever you live. If you want that local on the ground knowledge, you get with them. They'll also uh, we work closely with them on federal policies, and so you know if you've got a congressman that's key on the Natural Resources Committee or something like that, that's often where we'll go and we'll work with that state affiliate. And we'll help give them the kind of the bigger picture. And then they bring in some localized examples and we try to give them the full spectrum understanding of why XYZ investment or XYZ policy matters to them and, and gives them that holistic kind of look at it. So obviously becoming a member, um, we we're uh called the outdoors program, is what the NWF sporting work is called, NWF Outdoors. And so if you look at just NWF.org backslash outdoors. You'll see our website. That's our social media. We're always doing things there where you can see some policies that we're promoting. Um, You can also sign up on that website for our email list, which means that's where you'll get kind of the direct sporting communications. Um, When we see a big issue that's affecting the sporting community, we'll usually send out an alert and say, hey, this is how you can get engaged. This is the issue. Here's a couple of things you might want to know. Uh, contact your your congressperson or or others. Sometimes we do some state issues as well um, in, in partnership with our affiliates. So those are the quick ways. Um, you know, as you said, we've got the podcast in WFOutdoors.org is how you find our podcast and everywhere you find podcasts, but uh that's the that's the site. And we cover a lot of these issues. Um you know we had you on talking about grouse not too long ago. Uh, my next guest is actually going to be uh, Howard Vincent, the CEO of Pheasants and Quail. And so, you know, you're going to hear a little bit more about the outlook for for Pheasants and Quail and what they're dealing with and some of these same things we talked about. We've recently seen uh, the introduction of uh, the Grasslands Act, or at least the concept. I don't think it's been in officially introduced in Congress, but that's all about treating grasslands similar to the way we've treated wetlands, uh, creating a fund similar to NACA, uh, the North American Wetlands Conservation Act. And that's largely responsible for, for why our waterfowl is doing pretty well and largely responsible for creating wetlands and mitigating wetland loss and uh, it really helps waterfowl hunters. We want to see something like that for the grasslands because the grasslands are in real trouble. And uh, kind of back to what I said earlier, right? Who cares what it's called? If it does these things, we love it. And grasslands coincidentally are amazing at sequestering carbon. So wouldn't that be nice if we could do some restoration of grasslands and get that ancillary benefit of sequestering carbon? And then guess what? We get things like lesser prairie chicken. We get things like pollinators. We Maybe spots for bison someday if we can ever get them restored. All the prairie critters uh, are, are, you know, definitely getting benefit out of that. So those are the kind of things. Um but yeah, check us out on on social media. Obviously, we're doing a lot. You you were you were gracious enough to shoot us a little video about the podcast you were on, help us tell those messages and you know, we share things from other organizations as well when we when we know these are really important. You know, that Grasslands Act uh, coalition is is full of a ton of sporting organizations. So, we're all working in concert to make that happen. Um and and you know, we just try to tell the stories like you said via social media, via the podcast, and try to arm folks, if you will, with the information they need to go affect change uh, that helps hunting and fishing.
1: Love it all, Aaron. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been so much of a pleasure and I hope we can do it again because every time I talk with you, I feel like we could just go on for a day <laughs> and uh, I'll be sure to put notes in for all your podcasts and all the great work you're doing at NWF and just want to wish you the best for the fall, get out there and enjoy it and have fun and be safe. And uh, I look forward to doing it again soon.
2: Thanks, sir. Let's do that. And hopefully uh, one of these days it'll be around a campfire. So let's Even do it better. Take care, buddy. You bet.
0: Thanks for listening to the Outdoor Feast podcast. You can check out our other podcast and more at modcarn.com.